All right, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and flip to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, that should be pretty early on in the Bible. You got Genesis, then Exodus. So find Exodus chapter 1, and just straight out of the gate, I've got to tell you, this is a horrific text. It is a horrific text. It is Genocide 101. It is Ethnic Cleansing 101. And so we are going to see racism. We're going to see nationalism. We're going to see xenophobia. We're going to see oppression. We're going to see slavery. We're going to see hints at sex trafficking and abortion. And so it's just very fitting that we would be in this text on this day where we are remembering the sanctity of all human life. This week later on, Roe v. Wade, 1973. And then tomorrow is MLK Jr. Day, which is also part of the sanctity of life because what he contended for is also life. But as difficult as this text is when we get into it, and you'll see, I also think it's really helpful because one of the things it does is it helps expose perhaps some wrong thoughts, some wrong assumptions, some wrong expectations that we may have about what it looks like to follow Christ, what the Christian life looks like. And so in a lot of ways, this kind of serves us like a premarital counselor. Because a premarital counselor, like what his job is, or her job is, is to help you like understand beforehand some of the wrong assumptions and some of the wrong expectations you have about marriage before you get there, right? Now, certainly when you get there, there's going to be things you have to figure out as well. I mean, for Sarah and I, when we first got married, there were certainly things that we still had to uh, figure out about one another and learn about one another. Big things, little things, but like little things like, for me, I thought it was perfectly normal to sleep with your toes and feet moving all night long. That apparently is not normal. She wasn't ready for that. We had to work through that. I had to learn to calm my feet down. I thought that was normal. I thought when you brushed your teeth and you finish, you bang that thing on the sink a couple of times. She thinks that's not normal. So we had to work on that. I, I grew up in a home where we had a brother and a dad and my mom had short hair. I had no idea the amount of shedding that happens, the amount of hair that can get... And now I live in a house with five ladies. It's a hairapalooza at our house. It's everywhere. So we got a non-shedding dog. But there's big things, there's little things, but, you know, the big wrong expectations, that's what a marriage counselor is supposed to kind of help you with. To help you understand ahead of time, hey, it's not going to be candlelight fireside chats every night. It's going to be folding laundry, doing the dishes, paying bills. Kids are going to come along and there's going to be wiping bottoms, cleaning up vomit in the middle of the night. Parents are going to age. You're going to walk with them through that. Cling to one another as you mourn. And then it's going to be your turn. And you're going to walk through sickness with one another. And marriage is wonderful. Okay? It's a gift. Don't miss that. But you've got to have the right expectations going into it. 
And this text kind of serves us that way, like a marriage counselor, to show us, hey, you might have some wrong expectations about what the Christian life looks like. And so as horrific and hard as it is, it is helpful. And so we're going to see three honest lessons from this hard text. Three honest lessons. And so again, I mean, it is Genocide 101. It is Nationalism 101. This is the playbook. You can look at it historically. American slavery, Holocaust, Mao in China. This is the playbook for making a subset of your population feel subhuman. And it happened first to our brothers and sisters, the Israelites. And so read with me then in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. All right, remember that Joseph invited them down there. That's Genesis. Exodus is part two of a five-part like movie series. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch, Pentateuch, Torah. Okay, part two. So Genesis sets that up. Here are their names. Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon. These are the tribes of become the tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were, and if you're looking, tell me that number. I want to hear it. Seventy persons. Remember that. Seventy. Now Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so what we're seeing here is the continued fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 through 17, where God promises, I'm going to make you into a great nation through you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. This is the continuation. The population is growing, okay? But verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph or remember him either just over time memory faded or a new group of people conquered Egypt and were now in the position of Pharaoh and leadership either way didn't know didn't remember Joseph verse 9 and he said to his people behold the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if, if war breaks out, uh, they, they join our enemies and, and fight against us and escape from the land. And so by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to see the Israelites in oppression, in slavery, genocide being attempted on them, but you can't just go from like uh, not liking them to automatic genocide like that. You've got to build towards that. You've got to deal much more shrewdly. And so the playbook then is to get first a population to feel threatened by a surging minority. You got to get them scared. And so Pharaoh plays up their fears. There's just getting to be too many Hebrews. They might change our way of life. They might take all the, the good jobs. 
We've got to do something about this. This is shrewdness. I mean, think about Hitler, right? Hitler couldn't go from, like, not liking the Jews to what he called the final answer to the Jewish problem. Like, he couldn't just go from that to that. The, the Germanic people would have revolted. They would have been like, no way, that's crazy, what are you doing? He had to deal shrewdly over time. Build that propaganda machine. Oh, the Jews are the problem, the Jews are the problem, the Jews are the problem, the Jews are the problem. We can get rid of the Jews. They're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. Over years, propaganda machine, fear-mongering. Pharaoh's the same thing. He's got to let this get going, let it gain some steam. This is how nationalism works. Fear-mongering. It's how it worked then, it's how it worked now. So be careful of fear-based manipulation and decision-making. All right, so Pharaoh then gets that going, he gets that laid out there, gives it time, and then takes the next step, verse 13. So they, and look at all the hard words here, they're very hard. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And their lives made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so we can't sanitize the Bible when we read it. We have to read it honestly, how the author intended it. And it was brutal. It was, it was harsh. I mean, you think about why... Uh, Moses had to jump on the Underground Railroad and, and flee Egypt. He had to do that because he killed a man. Why did he kill a man? Because the man was beating the slave. And so think about the Israelites here. And think about how horrific, terrifying, dehumanizing it must be to have no one that you can call when violence breaks out against you because that very violence has been sanctioned by the government. That's our brothers and sisters in Israel. That's our brothers and sisters in the antebellum South and Jim Crow. This is why we honor MLK Jr. He helped us begin to overcome this. Like he marched per peacefully knowing that people would attack him. So that people would see abuse that was unseen and had been going on for decades. But as if this brutal slavery in Egypt was not enough, Pharaoh then moves to the next step. Subtle infanticide. Subtle. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, two things. First of all, this is very hush-hush. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to let people know what's going on. 
You're just going to get the Hebrew midwives. Not going to make this public. Don't want people to realize what's what's going on behind closed doors because even the Egyptians at this point, if they realized what was going on behind closed doors, they might say, no, 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 this is ridiculous. So it's hush, hush. Don't let people see. Don't let people know. It's not unlike abortion today. For most people, if they saw, if they saw, physically saw what was going on behind closed doors, saw little babies recoil from a needle, and then watched them be stabbed in the neck, brain sucked out, dismembered, would revolt. But got to keep it hush hush, keep it behind closed doors. Even the way we talk about fetus, collection of tissue, collection of cells, not a baby, unless it's wanted. And when we define life being deserved or being willing to have life when wanted, that is a dangerous road. That's the first thing, hush, hush. But the second thing here I want you to notice is notice who they're killing. They're killing the baby boys. Not killing the baby girls. Why? Because Pharaoh thinks, oh, baby boys, baby boys, they're the ones who will grow up to become warriors. So we need to take them out. Keep out. We're still in our slave labor, but let's take all the baby boys out. We'll keep all the, the baby girls. Why are we going to keep the baby girls? Well, one, so we have slave labor, but two, because I can use and abuse them. And things get bad, I can sell them. I can traffic them. See how many things out of sanctity of life are in this chapter alone? And so Pharaoh does not see women as a threat to the empire. He doesn't. Hold that thought. So, midwives, what happens next is the midwives, in stunning bravery, refuse to carry out the killing because they fear God more than they fear any man. And so Pharaoh shifts tactics again, and now he's finally got the population where he wants them. Just like Hitler finally got the German people where he wanted them to where they would go along with the final answer to the Jewish problem. Finally got them there. Now Pharaoh finally has them there. And so look at verse 22. The propaganda, the fear-mongering has worked. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. All his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so notice, this command isn't given to like some leaders, it's not given to some medical person, it's given to every single person who's Egyptian, it's given to the citizenship. His propaganda machine has so worked that the consciousness of the Egyptian people had been so seared to the point that they could hear a baby cry that the Israelites had tried to keep successfully hidden. They hear the baby cry, they can barge in, rip that baby out of the arms, grab it by the hair, grab it by the legs, walk out to the Nile, pitch it in, and all the other Egyptians are just like, oh, it's another day. Can you imagine the heartbreak that these folks lived in? The horror? And you're powerless to do anything, and anything that you try to do is going to wreak more violence on you and your family because you have no rights. And it's no wonder the slaves in the American South 
so identify with the book of Exodus. You rip kids away, or you actually survive the ship from Africa, and they're like, well, some conscious-seared Christian would say, well, I'll take her, but I don't want those kids. Seared conscience. This is the horror of Exodus 1. I told you it was horrific. And so what in the world do we learn from this? What do we learn from this horrific time? Two quick ones, and then one a little bit longer. The first honest lesson that we learn from this hard text is that God's people, like this, this pop this, pop, this wrong expectation, God's people are not immune from pain and suffering. That's one of the things this text teaches us, is that God's people are not immune from pain and suffering. Like if you thought you become a Christian, it's all peaches and cream, like that's foreign to the pages of Scripture. You won't find it. Look for it. That's a wrong expectation in this passage. And really the whole Bible shows us that. Suffering and loss, these things should never surprise a follower of Christ because it's all over the Bible. The problem is we don't believe the Bible. We want to read it and twist it and make it so that, you know, the Bible, Bible promises an easy life and that things will go well. I'll have my best life now. No, your best life's later. And Jesus tells us this, what Lee just read out of John chapter 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Like there's coming a day because Jesus died and rose again when evil will go out of existence, when he returns. But until that day, we will have trouble. But the hope of Christ is that he's with us in the midst of that trouble. And he's working even when we don't understand. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. All right? So I'm just going to set, I've got two things that are just setting aside. I don't normally like to do that, but I'm doing it today. But for now, I also want you to understand as we talk about this pain and suffering, sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes, I mean, things happen, but sometimes it is the purposeful kindness of God to wound His people. June 29th, 2012. They'll never forget when Sarah and I handed over our three-month-old baby to surgeon collection of people to cut her open spread that sternum apart break that bone saw through it turn her heart off fillet it open and build walls chambers and valves shut it it was not cruel of the doctors and surgeons to do that they wounded her Yes. By wounding her, they saved her. God sometimes has to wound us, has to cut us, to, to, to do surgery. He's got to get that out of us. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's the kindness of God to cut you. 
in order to heal you. But regardless of the reason pain and suffering may come into your life, know, first of all, first lesson, is that God's people are not immune to it. We're not. Second lesson, <clears throat> quick one, is that God tends to work, tends to, not always, God tends to work most powerfully through the weak and unlikely. That's how God tends to work. He tends to work most powerfully through the weak and unlikely. As you go through the Bible, you'll see this. You think about David. He was the youngest of the seven brothers. He was the weakling. He was the runt of the litter. God said, I'm going to choose him. You think about the disciples. They are simple fishermen, the majority of them. Not the ones you would expect to flip the world upside down. But God works most powerfully, usually, through the weak and unlikely. And we have another example here with the midwives, Shifra and Pua. Because not only were they slaves, we talk about weak and unlikely slaves, but they were also women. And in this time period, women were viewed as subhuman. But it was through these two women... Notice, we're given their names. We're not given Pharaoh's name. Like the writer's making a point. He gives us their names. It's through these two women that Israel is delivered. And somebody's like, whoa, whoa Joe, uh, Moses is a deliverer, Joe. Yeah, but there would be no Moses if there wasn't a Shifra and Pua. So the first deliverers of Israel are the midwives. Who just in bold, just crazy bravery refused to obey Pharaoh. Moses couldn't deliver Israel if Shifra and Pua hadn't delivered him. Literally. Weak and unlikely folks being used powerfully by God. And then on top of that, you remember how I said, hang on to the idea that. You know, women aren't a threat to the, to the empire. That's what Pharaoh said, right? Kill the boys. Don't worry about the women. We'll use and abuse them and slave labor and all that. Kill the boys. We're not, don't have to worry about the women. But folks, see the power of God working here because it is through the work of five women, one who doesn't even realize she's doing it, five women that the empire falls, crushes, these two midwives who refused to kill the boys. Moses' mama. Moses' sister. And then Pharaoh's own daughter. And so never believe. You're like, well, just put it in a basket and then watch the back. Used powerfully. There would be no Moses if, those, if they hadn't done that. And so never believe that you are too weak, you are too small, what you're doing is not important enough like, to be used powerfully by God. And notice what they did. They did not set out to like, go do something big for God. All they did was their job. The next right thing, day in, day out. So when this you know, edict comes to kill the baby boys, they're like, no, not going to do that. We're going to just keep doing the next right thing. Not going to do that. They feared God more than they feared man. And so they just kept moving forward. God works most powerfully, tends to, through the weakest and unlikeliest of people.
That's lesson number two. But then the third lesson, and the most significant one to this text, is that God always keeps His promises. And we even talked about that a little bit last week. But, often not how we would expect. Number three, lesson three. God always keeps His promises. But often not how we would expect. Because we look at the horror of this text and we're like, what on earth is God doing here? Why is He letting His people endure such you know, horrific circumstances? But if we look behind the scenes, we see that in His silent sovereignty, He's at work in every aspect of this. And He knows what He's about to do, but even here, He's at work. He hadn't gone on vacation, vacations, not having a spa day. He's at work even in the midst of this, carrying out His promise, but just not in the way we would expect. Because His promise was, I'm going to make your descendants, Abraham, into a great nation. And they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's the promise. But then you've got Pharaoh here, and Pharaoh's, you know, he wants to keep them weak. He wants to kill off the baby boys. He wants to keep them from growing and becoming. So he's an enemy of God. He wants to keep them from growing, keep them weak, keep them manageable. And so you've got Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the most powerful nation that the world has ever seen up into this time, who rules unquestionably, worshiped as the son of their sun god, Ray. Sets his mind to destroy the people of God. Begins oppressing them. All this. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And so behind the scenes, unwittingly even, Pharaoh, with each act he takes, thinking he's trying to oppress the people, all he does is tighten the noose around his own neck and begin loosening the bonds of these people. Like, he can't win. Everything he does fails. He tries to do all this, and it says in verse 7, they multiplied. In verse 12, they multiplied and grew. In verse 20, they multiplied and grew. Like, God is keeping His promise. And He continues to do this. Even more oppression that they're going to face. Because at the beginning, I asked you at the beginning, remember a number, when they first got to Israel, how many were there? Seventy. When they leave Israel, Genesis chapter 12, verse 37 says that there were 600,000 men, not counting women and children. Now you throw in those numbers, well, I mean, you're talking like two million people. God was keeping His promises. And it's not to say there wasn't suffering and pain. There was. But it is to say the most powerful forces on the earth cannot stay or destroy God's church, His people. He keeps His promises. And so friends, let that fill you with hope when you are in situations you don't understand. Why is this going on? What is God doing or allowing? Like, why is He doing what He's doing or allowing what He's allowing? And I'm sure the Israelites felt the same way. But our feelings, our lack of understanding does not mean God's not at work behind the scenes in His silent sovereignty. 
silent sovereignty, working everything out for His glory and our ultimate, but listen to me, maybe not immediate, good. See, God works with two hands. One is the very visible hand of miracles. And we're going to see this all through Exodus, right? We're going to have a burning bush that talks. We're going to see a Red Sea get divided. We're going to see all these plagues come. We're going to see manna fall from heaven. Water come out of a rock. The visible, miraculous hand of God is obvious. That's one way He works. But God most often works with the other hand. The invisible hand of providence. He had a visible hand of miracles, but he usually, most often, works with the invisible hand of providence. And so sometimes we'll say things like, Well, I just wish I could see God do something, when in actuality we see it all the time. We just don't recognize it because we're limited. We, 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 we don't have the ability to see it. But when it comes to thinking about the idea of the providence of God, His supernatural maneuvering of everything, like a giant flowchart of crazy complexity, when you begin thinking about the providence of God and how He does that, it is imperative to us that we hold on to two distinctions. One is that God is sovereign. And the other is that God is is good. Like if we are going to be biblical as we think about God's providence, we have to hang on to these dual facts. God's total sovereignty. He is sovereign always and forever. And He is good always and forever. Got to hang on to both of those. Because if you drift one way or the other, you get yourself outside of the Bible and into a whole mess of trouble. Because if you drift one way and you, you, you concentrate too much on God's goodness at the expense of His sovereignty, like you want to let Him off the hook somehow for bad things that have happened historically. So we're going to really talk about His goodness, but you know, God had no ability, no control to be able to change that thing. All you do is you've reduced God to a place of just mushy puppy love, no ability to do anything. He just sprinkles little pixie dust on people, but has no power to affect change, to bring good out of evil. And it's terrifying. It's a, it's a line of thought called open theism, and it's biblically wrong, and it's terrifying. What hope is there in a God who can't change things? Who can't do things? Who can't act and, and bring good out of evil? But then on the other side, you can also drift and get a little bit too heavily towards God's sovereignty to the neglect of His goodness. And this is what we call hyper-Calvinism or fatalism. And God's going to do what He's going to do. It doesn't really matter if I do anything. So, you know, you got molested. Your child got molested. Well, praise God, that's His will for your life. No, it's not. Ever. God doesn't plan evil for His people. Now, does that happen to Him? Mm -hmm. We're not immune. But He doesn't plan evil 
Like not everything that happens in the world, though he's sovereign, makes God happy. That's why in the Bible we see him mourn. We see him get mad, get angry. I think this is obvious. I mean, we see in our world sanctity of life, racism, abortion, injustice, sexual abuse, on and on. This, this isn't God's will. Not what God wants. God, God mourns and gets mad because not everything in creation is yet in obedience to Him. And so I need you to listen really closely. And we're talking sin and evil here, right? In no way is God the author of sin and evil. In no way is God the author of sin and evil. But He is the ruler of it. He is over it. He is above it. He is bigger than it. He is bigger than sin. He is bigger than evil. He is bigger than we are, than demons are, than Satan is. And that's why in the end, God will work it out for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. Romans 8. He has power to change things. He's over that stuff. He's bigger than that stuff. He's more powerful than that stuff. He's sovereign and good. Both of those. And so nothing's purposeless then. Not the Israelite suffering and not yours. Somebody says, but Joe, I, I don't see how anything good... Are you kidding me? You're saying that good is going to come out of like uh, slavery? Good is going to come out of uh, abortion? Good is going to come out of sexual abuse that I endured when I was a kid or my kid endured? You're... How is that going to happen? I don't see any way that could happen, Joe. How can that happen? How can good come out of it? I don't know. But God does. And that is not a cop-out. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this. The secret things, like we're going to believe the Bible, the Bible is going to be our rule. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so there are secret things that we don't understand. Big picture, like global, and in our lives as well. And so we've got to remember in the face of these things something that our culture does not like to admit. But it's imperative we believe the Bible and state it and understand it. And it's that you are limited. I am limited. We are finite. We are mortal. 
We are trapped in time. God exists outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. We're trapped in time. We can't see these things. We're limited. We can't begin to judge God based upon what we can see in our life. Like we can't you know, do it. God is working in ways that we can't see, even with the Israelites here, 400 years of slavery, many of whom died in the midst of that. We're going to get to see the deliverance, but there was a time, there was a, what's going on, God? But He was still at work outside of time, knowing what He's doing, but we're trapped inside of time and we can't always see it. It's, it's like a, a, a mayfly. You guys, fly fishermen, will know what a mayfly is. But do you know the life cycle of a mayfly? Anybody know how long those things live? Yeah, one to two days. One to two days. So, you know, born, larva stage for a couple of hours, all of a sudden becomes a fly, zooming around, flying around the river because that's where they're at. Looks over in the shallows and sees this like glob with a little tail, we'll call it a tadpole, flopping around, and it's like, huh, that's neat. Dies and no change. Has no idea, based upon its trapped time, that that thing's going to become a frog. No idea. Unable to see that. Limited. And so if he judges based upon things, he's going to be like, man, it's terrible to be one of those. They just flop around with a weird tail hanging off of them. Right? We, trapped in time, sometimes will judge things with no understanding of what's coming. I'll give you another, I've used this one before, but a movie. If we watch a movie, like uh, my family, we watched um, Karate Kid 2 this past weekend. I had to remind ourselves of some things going on with Karate Kid 2. So we watched Karate Kid 2. If I watched it in complete detail, but I only showed like a second to Kira here, and was like, hey Kira, tell me what the movie's about, she could only talk about the second she saw, and it might be a snapshot of pain. It might be a snapshot of suffering or injustice. But the whole movie, like, I know where it's going, right? Mr. Miyagi's going to make up with Sato. It's going to work out. And that's God. He sees the whole thing. But for us, it's like a piece of art. When you go out here, look on the walls on the way out. Left side, right side, when you go out. We've got artistically represented an old school room out there. We have it represented because I used to talk about it so much. In an old school room, if you are underneath it, which metaphorically, that's where we live. We live under the loom. And underneath it, it's just a tangled mess of broken ends and knots and mess-ups and ugliness. But above the loom, you see the tapestry that's being woven. God lives above the loom. He knows what He's doing, but we live below the loom with no ability to see above the loom because we are finite. We are limited. We need to understand and acknowledge that as we face the difficulties of our life, I'm limited here. I can't understand it all. God would be an awful small God if we could actually understand everything that He's doing. But God knows what He's doing. He's weaving that loom. And it's a beautiful tapestry. It's a beautiful full-length feature film, but there are snapshots of pain. 
but he's weaving and he's doing it cosmically and he's doing it personally in each one of your lives. And so while the circumstances of our lives may look messy and senseless to us and even be fraught with pain, God's sovereignty hasn't stopped in your life. And God's goodness hasn't stopped in your life. His providential care hasn't stopped in your life. His leading you somewhere good hasn't stopped. The silent hand of sovereignty is at work even when we don't recognize it. We just can't see it because we're limited. And so as we face the difficulties of our lives, we must remember we're limited, we're finite. But we also need to remember the cross. Because think about the cross for a minute. It is at the cross where we see the ultimate example of God using suffering for the good of His people. Because it's at the cross where we see that like, through the greatest evil that could ever be perpetrated, the greatest suffering that anyone could endure, through that came the greatest good that we could ever imagine. Our forgiveness, eternal life. And dear friends, if God did that, the greatest wickedness in the world that the world has ever known, resulting in the greatest good and joy the world could ever know, then surely the evil and suffering in your life ends in some sort of good too. Because that's who God is. He is sovereign and good. Which means that no pain is therefore senseless. Painful, yes. Purposeless, no. And there is a day coming where God will end evil forever when Jesus returns. But until that day, God will keep His promises to you in this life too. But sometimes they don't work the way we expect. But He will keep His promises. And when it doesn't work out the way you expect, and it looks a little different than you would expect, or maybe way different, you got to remember your limitations. Remember God's sovereignty and goodness. Remember those things. And remember the cross. The greatest act of suffering and evil resulting in the greatest good ever. Remember those things. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that we just we don't understand. We don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. It makes no sense to us. Or we don't understand why you're allowing what you're allowing. It makes no sense to us. And so, Father, in those moments, whether globally or personally, help us to remember that we're limited and we can't see everything. And that you're sovereign and good and you can bring good out of evil because you are powerful and because you are good.
You identify with us, Jesus. You've suffered too. In every way that we have. Been tempted, yet without sin. And you identify with us in our, our pain and our suffering. And so, Father, we pray for your help, Lord. We know we don't want to suffer. We don't want to go through these things, but we, we will. In this world, we will have trouble. And so, Father, help us not be surprised when it, when it shows up. But help us also not to, not to collapse under it. Maybe knocked off our feet, sure. Shaken, sure, but not destroyed. Because we remember who you are. And we remember that you are good. And that you are powerful. And that you know the full-length feature film. And we live below the loom. And so help us to trust. Even as we hurt. Help us to remember as we sing sometimes that your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and in the flood. You are faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And in the midst of it, you will hold us fast. Whatever it is, your providential care, you will hold us fast. In Christ's name, amen.